and bring a biblical worldview to them. And so what you're going to hear probably are things that are not really touched and preached about in church. And we're just going to go for it. And the reason why, and I spent the whole, the whole message last time explaining this, but the reason why is there's much confusion happening in society today about all sorts of things. And because there's massive amounts of confusion, the challenge is that, uh, you know, the church is lacking clarity. And so we're living in an hour where there's social confusion Uh, lack of clarity and understanding in the church. Uh, We're lacking clear prophetic voices to to speak the the ways of the kingdom. And then at the same time, we're living in an information culture that's heightening the intensity. And so because of all of that, there's just this challenge that we're experiencing right now in social conversation, and the church is actually lagging behind. And I don't believe the church should be behind. I believe the church should be setting the course. I think the church should be the, uh, what the scripture says, the, the ground and the, the foundation of truth. And so that's what we're endeavoring to do these next several weeks. And so uh, today, I'm just going to come out of the gate. Last week, we talked about the ways of the kingdom versus the ways of the world and how the value system of the kingdom is the value system that we're supposed to live by. Uh, I, I put it there in a recap, just very simply, that... Uh, you know, there's much confusion. The sway of the world is influencing social conversation. And, and the question for believers right now is, are we going to allow ourselves to be mostly influenced by the sway of the world system, or are we going to be mostly influenced by the kingdom of God? And the, we, re, there really isn't a, a choice in that. We have to choose to be influenced primarily by the kingdom of God. We can't just allow ourselves to be, to be uh, sort of brainwashed by a world system that's under the sway of the wicked one, as 1 John 5, 19 says. So uh, we can't live, therefore, by our feelings or, or um, you know, the, the prevailing social rhetoric, political parties, our natural culture, our, our personal experiences, or even our family. Any, any of these influences that are not... Uh, from the kingdom of God, we really have to check those, submit them to the kingdom, and allow Jesus' will, Jesus' ways, His Word to direct the course of our lives and to direct our opinions. And that's where we left it last week. Like, we just said, you know what? We don't want to have any opinion that's not the opinion of Jesus. That's kind of the point, and and, and I just say there in the D that we have to live by the culture of the kingdom. And complex topic. I want to talk about uh, the issue of, of uh, gender identification that's happening in society and people self-identifying their gender. Now, that might seem completely crazy for a Sunday morning, but I've, well, there it goes. I, I've done worse, so <laughs> it, it doesn't feel, and so my challenge is that when we talk about things like um, sex, but when the church does open its mouth, it's usually railing against it. And, and I just don't believe the church should always have a bad attitude. And our main message shouldn't always be no, you know. I mean, that's like all we say. We should actually give clarity, give understanding, give the heart of Jesus. And where it is sin, we call sin, sin. And then we reach out in... Let's have fun. All right. Look at Roman numeral 2. 
And I want to just start with this broad thought, a simple thought between originator. So the identity and purpose of anything that is made is derived from the desire of its creator. It doesn't matter what you make or who is doing the making. If you make a keyboard, the guy that made this, the company that made this keyboard, gets to decide what this is. Oh, look, it's still on. He gets to decide the notes, how those are going to go, whatever is on board, whatever's, whatever kind of changes can happen. If you can change the, the sounds or whatever, the volumes, there's zone one, two, three, four. I have no idea what that is. But the guy that made this did, and he knows what that's for. There's all sorts of, there's a digital display up here, lots of buttons. The maker is the one that puts on board what he wants, and he defines what it is that those things do. Now, the, the keyboard itself doesn't have really a, a, a role in that, does it? It just gets made. It, it, just, it just is what the creator made it to be. It, it, it is what it is. It, it doesn't have the ability to go back to the, the designer and tell the designer, I don't like that I've got black and white keys. I want them to be orange and yellow. It, it can't do that because it's what's made. By definition, right? By definition. And so uh, it's, it's not up to the thing created to say to the creator what its purpose should be or to give itself definition. That, that's just not an option for something that's made. A car has to be a car. A hamburger has to be a hamburger. Not because, not because we're operating by a strict set of guidelines, but by definition, what is, is determined by what makes it. Does that make sense? It's just a simple thought, but I think it's super profound, and I think it can help us bring clarity to this really difficult subject. So what is, is under the authority and under the power of what makes it. And so uh, Romans 9.21 gives us uh, clarity as this relates to our creation and, and God as our creator. And it says it this way, does not the potter have power over the clay? And beloved, I'm going to tell you something. This is really the question for humanity right now. Will we, will we recognize that we're made, fearfully and wonderfully made by a God who loves us and has great intentions and desires for us? Or will we take unto ourselves that role of imagining ourselves to be creator, to be God? Because this is where the social conversation is going as it relates to human sexuality. Now, just, I'll just tell you, we're going to be PG-13 this morning. So if you got a young person in here, just you might as well either invite them to the lobby or school them up afterwards, I'm just saying. So, see, I say this, that the truth of the creator-created relationship, it extends clearly to our relationship with our creator. We can only find our purpose and definition through our relationship with God, our maker. We can only find our purpose and our definition from God because he made us. Now that right there is an interesting point. And, and even if we just step away for a moment from the subject of human sexuality, that's the million dollar question that virtually 
every single person wants to know. Why am I here? What am I made for? What's my identity? And I have met many people who have lived their entire life without an understanding of their purpose, without a real understanding of their identity. They might know their name, but they do not know why they were made. Hello. And, and I'll tell you, that ends up being what many, many people live their whole life for. They, I call it, they toil for validity. They work and work and work and work to try to give definition and identity to themselves. And all the while, God who loves them, who knows them, who made them, who created them, who, who, who knows everything about them, knows what they're designed, uh, what gifts they have, what qualities of, of emotion they have and personality, all their, he knows all their unique intricacies. God knows exactly what he made them for. And they'll live their entire life without asking God, looking for their own purpose and their own identity. I'm not talking, talking just about the world. I'm talking about believers. Believers. And they'll work and work and work and work to try to prove that they're valid, to try to find an identity, to try to give themselves definition. And all the while, the Lord is there saying, I made you for one singular purpose. I made you for myself. I made you because I love you. And I want to have relationship with you. And it's through that relationship with God that we find identity. And I will just tell you, let me just say this really, really clear. If the governing motivation of your life is not, be, not that you've been made and loved by God, that's what you live for. If that's not the governing motivation of your life, you've got to connect to that because that's the only motivation that makes sense in this world. That you've been made by a God who loves you, who made you for love. That's what we're made for. I like to say it this way. If you don't know that the story's a love story, you gotta start over and find out what the story's really about. The whole story of human creation is a love story from beginning to end. That's what it's about. That's why God made us. He made us because he loves us. Now we can only get that information from our creator. We can't get that from working real hard at anything. You can only get that information from God as revealed through the scripture that he made us for his purposes, for himself, with us. And that, you know, when you have that concept in place, then it helps you to, to actually to contextualize the activity of your life because you realize that everything that you've gone through, good and bad, is actually an ingredient that the Lord has allowed to cause you to grow to be a, a mature lover of God. I don't think he causes all the difficulty, but I think he uses all the difficulty to cause our hearts to love him with everything that's inside of us. Can I get a little better amen? amen. Thank you. And so this is how we, we, we have to understand our existence, that we have a God who loves us, who made us for himself and has good intention toward us. That's the bottom line. I'm telling you, I can't get out of bed in the morning without that truth on my mind. I don't have anything to live for if I don't know that point. 
And I, and I think, uh, painfully, I think about so many people that live their whole life with no understanding of God's great affections for them. They live their whole life trying to be a, a better this or that or get more money or have a greater you know, a, approval by men, have many people like them. I mean, you, you're talking about living for stuff that will absolutely destroy you. If you get your self-worth worth and identity from what people think, what happens when they don't think so good of you? Your identity goes down the tubes. What happens, if you get your self-identity from how much money you have in your bank account, what happens when the economy crashes? If you get it from anything except for this constant fact of God's affections for you, you are in danger of having a serious identity crisis. Because there's a moment when whatever you've based your identity on is going to fail, and when it fails, you will be completely lost. But if you live by revelation of the knowledge of God's love for you, that never changes, it never ceases, and you can't, even, you can't improve one inch on it. Man, I'm preaching so much better than you guys. Amen. I'm working up here now. Come on. You can't improve one inch on God's love for you. You've already won the identity contest. You've already won the definition contest when you understand that's what you're made for. So I really don't touch much of that except for in that one phrase there in the outline, but it's true. We can only find our purpose and definition through a relationship with God, our maker. So then in D, I just say this, that the, ident- the idea that a humanity can pick its own gender identity imagines that man is somehow in the place of the originator and thus can self-assign his definition and identity, which would be absolutely false. We are not our own maker. Just like the keyboard can't say what color it wants its keys to be or what functions it wants on board or even what it wants to be called, neither can we because we are made, fearfully and wonderfully made. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by a God who loves us, but we cannot change His intended purposes for ourselves. That's just, that's just elementary in the understanding of creator-created relationship. And you and I... We, we are firmly set in that relationship. We are the created. We are not the creator. Thank God. Thank God that I'm not God. Thank God you're not God. We would have messed it up badly by now, right? Just think about your own little life. I mean, all you had to do was your own little bitty life and all the mistakes and all the, hello, jacked upness of your own mistakes. I mean, yeah, thank God that you're not God, that I'm not God, that we're not running everybody else's stuff. So, I say in E, we don't have the authority or power to self-identify. Okay, we don't have the authority or power to self-identify. Now, I'm just laying groundwork. This is just, this is just foundational concepts that enable us to understand what's happening in society with this conversation because there's many real people that are, that are really dealing with a, a dissonance and feeling, well, I, I, I know that I, I'm a man, but I, I don't feel that way inside. And so you go, well, what is that? Well, we're going to talk about that, but I'm just foundationally giving us uh, you know, a framework to work from 
in the, from the Scripture, actually. So God, in F, I say He created us, and His desire is to give us the richest, most abundant life possible. Jesus said, I came to give you life and give you life more abundantly. Now think about that. Do you and I believe that God's design for us is to have an abundant life, a rich life, a good life? Do we believe that His design is good? See, if you don't believe God's design is good, if God's goodness is on trial and you allow accusation to come, and you allow your momentary circumstances to inform the judgment. Well, the enemy will, he will give you no shortage of accusations, and the difficulties of this world will give you no shortage of real-life examples of challenge. So you have the accuser who accuses not only saints, accuses God, and you have challenges of living in a fallen world. And so if you're going to put God on trial, when you get those two things, it seems like you've got a lot of evidence. Man, there's a lot of difficulty on, going on in my life. I don't think God's in this for my good. And I would tell you this, that evidence of that nature is circumstantial and it's based in deception. Because the accuser is a liar and circumstances are not eternal. They're subject to change. And so what happens is people put God on trial. They say, God, are you good or are you bad? And they look at the moment of their, their, you know, their life and the difficulty. They listen to the lies of the enemy and they go, God's bad. He doesn't want my good. And that's just absolutely false. No, God's good. God's good how often? All and all the time. God is good. And he only wants good. And in his design for us, is his goodness. It's inherent in his, in his making of us. It's his goodness. He's designed us in a good way for our pleasure, actually, that we would have the greatest riches and abundant life that we can experience. And in that is his greatest pleasure, which is ultimately what he made us for, himself. Do you see that his construction of us is for our good? Now, what happens is humanity says, well, I don't believe that. I think I've got a better plan for me and how I should live than God's. Now, I know that sounds like, well, we just want everybody to be able to make their own decisions. But at the end of the day, you cannot say to the maker what is better for you and assign that as good instead of what the maker's intentions are if we've established that the maker is good. You see what I'm saying? His good intentions, they govern our entire existence. And so, we have to get our mind around that God has this great desire for goodness for us, and he made us with that desire in mind. And if we live by his design and his ways, we'll ultimately experience the greatest levels of pleasure and fulfillment. Let me just say this. Pleasure isn't a bad word. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. I like to call the throne of God the pleasure epicenter of the entire created order. Yeah. 
And if I could just be frank with you this morning, God created sex and he created sexual pleasure. You don't have to amen it, just stay there. (laughs) Don't want anybody amen too loud right there. You know, we are in church. (laughs) But he created that. It was his idea. Some people think it's the, that sex was the devil's idea. You, some people would just imagine the devil came up with sex and God, he's, he's all about everybody wearing straight jackets and nuns' habits. And that's just not reality, guys. God created sex. He created sexual pleasure. He created it. Why? For our good. For our good. He made sex good for our good. Why? Because God's good and he wants good for us. What happens is we take matters in our own hand and we say, well, I don't want to do it the way you've given me to do it because I'm going to find a way that's better for me. And in my own, you know, ideas, I will come up with what I will enjoy more than what you've made for me to enjoy. And in that moment, in that moment, we make ourselves the creator and we make God subservient to our wishes and our desires. Okay, I'm just trying to give clarity so that some of the fog that gets on our mind in the social conversation just begins to lift. So I'm just hitting it and hitting it and hitting it from a bunch of different ways so we can get precision in our minds. So God is a great and good plan for human sexuality. His plan for gender and sexuality is for our greatest good. And we've got to live according to his designs for us to experience this goodness. And on the opposite living according to the world system will steal from us. That's what we have to get our mind around. That living according to the world's ways will steal from us. That's what Satan is interested in. Listen to me. Anybody listening, if you're listening online, if you're listening here, Satan's desire isn't to give you freedom. It's not to give you pleasure. It's not to give you a good life. His desire is to steal from you and to destroy you. That's what he's trying to do. And so when the conversation and and the emphasis and the, the influence of society is moving in opposition to God's will and God's ways, I'm telling you, it's not for your good. It's for your destruction. Please hear me on that. Hear me on that. In every way that God has designed human sexuality, God made it for our pleasure, for our benefit. And in our pleasure and benefit, God gets pleasure. He likes it when we enjoy how he made us. He likes it and he's actually created great levels of joy that we can experience inside of his will. Satan says, here, why, why go with God's way? It's so harsh. It's so, you know, you're so strict. And, 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 and he just wants you in handcuffs and in a straitjacket. Here, you want freedom? Here, come do sin. Come do it my way. Rebel against God. Throw off his chains. And that's Satan's message. But what is he doing? He's saying, step outside of God's protective plan. Step outside of God's ordained ways so I can put a chain on you that you will never get out of. Because I want to destroy you. That's really what's going on. And somehow the thing has gotten twisted and perverted in society where the devil has deceived people to believe 
God is the bad guy and the devil is the good guy. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. God's designs for us are so good. And Satan's designs for us are to destroy us. There it is in John 10.10. The thief uh, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life. I I was just saying, I don't love love 2 a.m. feedings, but I do love babies. And... And so we're made by God. We're his handiwork or his own unique design. He made us for himself and we're an expression of his glory. We're actually bearers of his image. I I tell you, there's so much dignity installed in humanity. God made us in his own image and likeness. He's perfect. He's eternal. He's glorious. He's beautiful. And he made us in his own image and likeness. And Satan, just like a just like a burnt, you know, person who's just a just upset, like somebody that gets gets upset in a relationship or something, he's what's he doing? He's attacking the image. You know, you ever seen a, a couple and they break up, and the one that breaks up, or the one that got broken up with, they go home and they get the picture out. And they just mark that thing up or they tear that thing up and they why they're not doing it to the person they're trying to do it to the image of the person that's that's lucifer he's attempting always to attack attack the image but we're made in his image and likeness we look like him god made us through and through like himself sin has marred that but in jesus we have redemption and that image-bearing reality is going to come to fulf- fulfillment, to fullness in the resurrection where it actually says, we will be glorified. John said it this way, when we see him, we're going to be like him. You could spend a long time thinking about that. When you see him, you're going to be like him. Oh man, he's put so much dignity inside humanity, in the human frame. So we're created. We're an expression of his glory. Secondly, we are humankind. We are man. We, we are human. We're we, we, we actually defined. And, uh, you know, we, we are doing a, obviously we've talked about a lot, this, this uh, movement that we're, we're working with so many pastors and, and leaders. We call it one race. And, and the reason why is not because we're emphasizing anybody's culture of, over anybody, because we, what we think is this, God made humanity one race, and then he gave us all the different cultures. One race isn't homogenization, it, it's beauty and, and, and many in harmony, and many different sounds all going together. It's the, it's the distinction of all the different cultures, all the different languages, all the different tongues, all the different people groups, all together, experiencing one thing together. It's called the human condition. We're all human beings. Doesn't matter what color your skin is, cut that skin and it will all bleed red. It's all one race together. That's who we are. And so God made us, he made us mankind. You got that, right? You know you're a human being. Nobody in here thinks that you're not. No. In society right now, some people are losing bearings on reality and their self-identifying no longer is human. 
This is real. See, what happens is, is when, once we put ourselves in the position of creator, if we imagine we can reassign ourselves in terms of gender, the slope gets real slick. Because now it's not just my gender, it's actually what am I? And there are people that self-identify as animals. They self-identify as other things that are not human. And it's real. They actually live their life like that, imagining themselves to be a dog or imagining themselves to be something else. I'm not making this up. This is real in our society today. And people affirm it. It's hard. No, I know this is hard. This is reality. So God made us humans. We are created and we are made, we are humans. Mankind is slightly lower than the angels, Psalm 8 verse 5 says, and and that the angels are immortal and we are mortal without Christ. But in the resurrection, we will become we will become immortal. We will experience uh, glorification. And, and, and ultimately, we are made to have dominion over all the works of God's hands, even to this extent that we're going to rule and reign with him on the earth. We get to rule and reign with God in the kingdom on the earth. And then in the glorification, human beings will actually judge fallen angels. Oh, my goodness. We do not conceive of who it is that God has made us and the, I mean, the absolute dignity that he's installed, installed in humanity. It's, it's unbelievable. All right, and then finally, so we're created, we're human. I know this is elementary, but beloved, society's going nuts right now. We need clarity. We're created, we're human, And God made us as an expression of himself in two distinct genders. Two distinct genders. Male and female. And and here's the deal. Male and female are equal in value. I want to say that really loud. (laughs) Equal in value. Equal in worth. Equal in dignity. Male and female are equal in God's eyes. Now, he's made our frames different. He's made our frames different because it's in our frame that he expresses the unique qualities of himself. Did you know that God has in himself the qualities of feminine and masculine? Did you know that? And so he had to create two genders to be able to fully express himself because in his nature and in his makeup he has both qualities now he refers to himself as father and and in in terms of pronouns male pronouns and, and we believe that's who god is he is a father But at the same time, in his makeup are actually feminine qualities and it's expressed in the human creation. That's why we have male and female. Glory to God. Listen, men aren't like the image of God and women are sort of like the bonus round. That's not reality. So look at Genesis chapter 1, and it'll be really super clear. I'm just, all I did right there in in BC and D, broke down Genesis 1, verse 27. God created, what did he create? Mankind, 
in his own image, in the image of God. What? Male and female, he created them. That hierarchy is clear, it's set, it's done in creation. And the male and female components that, that are exhibited in, the, in, the, in humanity come from the being and the nature of God. Glory to God. You're an image bearer. You express something of his nature. That, that's what you have going for you. Listen, some people take so much pride in their, you know, their job or in their family name or in their, their accomplishments. I'll tell you what, you want to glory in something? Glory in this, that you're made in the image and likeness of God. You're, you're carrying on board something of his fingerprints. He made you because he loves you and you, you're an expression of his glory. All right. Okay, so E, I say this. Within the nature of the being of God, there's masculine and feminine. We've covered that. We are image bearers. We've covered that. He needed male and female to express it fully. Amen. All right, let's go to Roman numeral four. Now, some people, would, they think, when they think, about, when they think about God and science, for instance, they think that those are independent, but I would tell you God created all the science. Glory. And uh, scientists aren't always right. There's a giant movement within science to get God out of the picture, but they just, it just, it's just so pesky when you have a creator. It's just so hard to get rid of the guy that made everything. Some of you science folks will know it, but there's, I think it's the, one of the key laws of, is it thermodynamics? That nothing comes into being without something putting it there. You can't get past that one. Can't get past that one. I, I, I watched a uh, documentary on why creationism is getting taken out of schools and, and they had the leading atheist and they finally targeted him and they got him down. They had questioned him and they said, so what about this, this law that you can't have something come out of nothing? What about that? He goes, right, I agree with that. And they go, well, doesn't that foil your idea that we're not, that there's not a creator? He goes, Oh, yeah, no, no, I'm convinced there's not a God. So if we came from nothing, then he goes, oh, no, no, we didn't come from nothing. And so they said, so where do we come from? Aliens. He said aliens. He said aliens. He's the leading, I won't call his name, the leading atheist. He said, we were seated here by aliens. See, we'll do anything in the fallen human nature We'll do anything to get God out of the picture. The Proverbs writer said, the fool has said in their heart, there is no God. There's a fallenness and a brokenness of the human condition where we want to be God so bad, we will play every kind of mental and and scientific gymnastics to try to get rid of him. And you just can't. He's God and there is no other. He's high above all. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. He is our originator, and He is our final. He is everything, and in Him, everything that that has breath, it it lives and moves and has its being. That's who God is. So look at science. Look at this. I just want to lay this out again. A little science lesson. 
PG-13 just a little bit. So somehow there's this popular mentality that gender and biological sex, that they're different. Even though all those things I've, I've laid out about creation uh, and creator and created, there, there's this idea that gender and biological sex can be different. But uh, that idea, I would just tell you, is brand new within the last couple generations. In other words, you have thousands of years of human existence and, uh, you know, everyone say, well, we're getting, we're getting, you know, more advanced and more advanced and more advanced. And we've gotten so advanced now that we've lost sight of our creator and we're self-assigning what we feel like we are. And, and so that phenomenon of separating gender from biological sex is actually a brand new thing within the last couple of decades. I, I did a lot of research on this to figure out where this came from. And the first whiffs of it were in the late 70s, early 80s. So you're talking about a concept that is less than 50 years old that is now being embraced by entire nations. I mentioned last week that the nation of Canada, our beloved neighbors to the north, have now put on their passport that you can be male, female, or other. So every civilization until now has... Has, I, uh, has agreed that biological sex determines one's gender. Let me give you something very, very simple. It just, I mean, I just, it's just so simple. Here it is in C. Biological sex is determined by the chromosomal makeup of a fertilized egg. I think everybody knows this, but this is just, I'm rebooting seventh grade science right now. XX is female while XY is male. The female egg always carries the X sex-determining uh, determining chromosome, while the male sperm can carry either X or Y sex-determining chromosome. Now, here's the thing. In the Y chromosome, there's one gene, and that gene, when it's present at conception, when that X and that Y chromosome c- comes together, the one gene on the Y chromosome, it begins the process of masculinization of that fertilized egg, of that child that's in the womb. That immediately starts happening upon conception. It's either XX, female, or XY, male, and if it's XY, immediately in the womb, the... It, the uh, masculinization of that, of that child begins. And here's the thing. That will never change about someone. They're either XX or XY. It doesn't matter how much hormone treatment somebody has, how much surgical treatment someone has. In their core, in their genetic makeup, by nature of the creator and how he created us, the XX and the XY cannot change. So what you end up with is no matter, no amount of surgical procedure can, can actually move somebody from being a male to a female or from a female to a male. This is set in our design by our creator. This is the way that we were made to declare his beauty and his glory. That is not changeable. 
You may be able to change a variety of physical features, but you cannot change who you are on the inside. And somebody say, oh, on the inside, I feel like I'm something else. Yeah, your feelings and the truth of who you are are in opposition. They're not the same. And the truth of who you are is that you are either male or female in creation at conception. That's a hard truth, but it's real, guys. We don't have the ability to change that. Why? Because that's what God sets up. God sets that up. So, F, I'm going to quote Dr. Paul McHugh, who is, I mean, he is under fire. If you read on, about him on the internet, he is getting hit from every angle, but he's stayed the course. This doctor who's the head of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University. They were the pioneers for sex reassignment surgery, and they stopped doing it in the late 70s because of Dr. McHugh's uh, research and his, his suggestions. And, and now Johns Hopkins, like virtually every other place in society, has folded to the pressure of being inclusive and they're actually just now getting ready to, to start that program of, of uh, reassignment surgery again, though the head of their psychiatric department is still saying it's completely not an answer for people. And he's got lists of reasons. One of them is that in sexual reassignment, he has studies that show that uh, the rate of suicide goes up 20 times that of the normal population for those that have had sexual reassignment surgery. And he says, I will not be a contributor to a psychiatric disorder that's causing people to kill themselves at an alarming rate when they go through a physical change that doesn't change who they are in their core. So what does he say? He says this, quote, sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women. Claiming that this is a civil rights matter and encouraging surgical intervention is in reality to collaborate with and promote a mental disorder. This is not a blogger on the internet. This is a doctor who's distinguished in his field who's looked at this for decades, done multiple studies on it. And he's come to the conclusion that within, within the genetic code of an individual is not the potentiality to change that individual. And when you do that in a surgical way or with hormonal treatments, you're actually cooperating with something that is amiss in the person's mind. In one of his other articles, he said, it would be like someone struggling with anorexia and you agree with them that they shouldn't eat. Beloved, these are hard truths, but we have to stare at them. And here's my, my desire. I don't want to stare at them unmercifully. I want us to get our minds around what's really going on here. There are mental issues happening to people for a variety of reasons 
There are, are, are uh, psychological, psychiatric things that are happening to people that are leaving them very confused about their feelings. I'm not telling you that those feelings of, of, of gender disorientation uh, uh, are, are false. There's a, uh, there's a psychiatric term for it. It's called gender dysphoria. Those are real feelings that real people are really experiencing. And so at, from the church, we have to be clear on truth but we've also got to be clear on the heart of God about this. That the Lord is not up there just smashing every single person that's got real feelings of gender dysphoria going on or, or homosexual same-sex attraction going on. God isn't extra, you know, mad and ready to judge that person. He's looking at that person just like he looks at anybody who's got any kind of sin going on, any kind of challenge going on. If you're without sin, then you have great ground to judge others. To to be able to uh, tenderly speak and, and, and minister to the heart of who have actually had reassignment surgeries who got born again. And they said, you know, grave mistake, and I'm going to live with that mistake as long as I'm in my physical body, but I'm not just here for just this physical life. I'm going to live forever with Jesus. And it's, it's I mean, it's amazing stories of the grace of God, how God can break through even something like that and rescue people and set them free in their soul. Now, let me just give you this last passage, and we'll close with this. Again, critical conversations. We want to be clear on these points. We want to have a biblical mentality rooted in truth with Jesus' heart. I know this isn't the four steps to have a happier day message, but we don't need that right now. We need clarity, guys. We need love in our hearts and clarity about truth. Back to this passage, John chapter 8. Verse 3, then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him, that's Jesus, a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. I will add that this was during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the festival where it's about God coming and tabernacling with men. This woman was in the bed with another man who was not her husband. So on the holiday where it's about intimacy between God and man, this woman was in sexual immorality with someone else. I mean, it's, you couldn't get any more perpendicular to what God was doing during that festival. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I've always wondered what he wrote on the ground. He writes on the ground twice. The Bible doesn't tell us what it is. That'll be one of the one million questions I ask. What did you write? When we get there, I'm sure they'll have whole classes on what he wrote on the ground. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And beloved, that's the position the church needs to take 
on every issue of sin. And I will tell you this, that self-righteous railing against people who are in sin or who are lost in the world, and and you see Christians out there and they're railing against people and they're judging people and they're holding up signs, God hates gays and all that. That is as repulsive and demonic as any sin. That is just as repulsive. That is not Jesus. Those people need to get saved and delivered just as much as the person in the sin that they're protesting. That's ridiculous. That doesn't express the heart of our Jesus. Here's where Jesus is. He's in the dirt with a harlot. You want to know what the church's expression should be? Get in the dirt. Get down on your knee and get down in there with somebody who's going through it. Walk with them. Get in their life. Hear their story. Find out what's going on with them. Hear what's happening in their heart so you can express Jesus' love to them. Because whatever they're experiencing that's binding them, that's, that's Satan's plan for them, that's not God's plan for them. Jesus got a better plan for them than what they're going through. What they're experiencing that's destroying them. Jesus wants, he wants life for them. Get on your knee and get in the dirt with them and help them out of there. That's the expression the church should have. Toward the gay community, LGBTQ community, transgender people, the church should be like right there going, how can I express the love of God to you? Not railing with signs or mean blog posts or firing something off. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Just get out of that. That's not Jesus. Get in a place of, where you're able to minister the compassionate heart of God in the midst of a society that is sin-sick and deceived. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What was it, Jesus? Just tell us. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to a woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Or the, the, the broader thought on that word condemned, judged you to death. Has none of them have, have executed judgment on you in this moment. She says, no one, Lord. No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I execute judgment on you right now. Now here's what you need to know. Don't do this anymore. Go and sin no more. Do you see the position that Jesus takes as the intercessor with the harlot? He gets in front of the self-righteous, turns them away, and then instructs her in the path of righteousness with mercy. Oh, beloved, that's the church. That's where we're supposed to be living on these issues. Clarity to what's right and, and what, about what's right and what's wrong, and then ministering with a heart of compassion and mercy. Now notice, notice a couple points. This woman had not repented. 
The church is like, well, we'll, we'll, if you repent, then we'll love on them. That's not Jesus. He's in the dirt with her. That's right. God's calling right now, y'all. He's in the dirt with her before she repents. Secondly, he doesn't tell you, you know, it's okay, everybody sins, you're fine, no problem. He doesn't. He says, I'm not judging you right now. I'm here in the dirt with you. Please, don't do this anymore. Because implicit in it is, there is a day of judgment coming. It's real. And you don't want to stay in this. I'm not judging you now, but there's a day coming. Don't do this anymore. That's the message of the church. We love everybody. We want everybody to experience the abundant life that God has for them. We don't judge people. That's not our, 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 our job. Our job is to, to judge matters of this life and to, to speak righteousness and truth in the middle of confusion and, and to be clear, a clear beacon of truth in a, in a world that's lost. But we don't condemn people. We call them out of it. And that's what Jesus did. Beloved, I don't care how crazy the sin is. I don't care. I have met people and I know people, some are my family members, who have been completely addicted to drugs, completely blown up their whole life. I know people that have all over the spectrum been been Satanists. I I know people have been murderers. I mean, every kind of sin you want to name that have come out of their sin, repented and turned to Jesus, you never write anyone off. You never write anyone off. I like to say it this way. You give up on them when you'd want God to give up on you. Man, I thank God he didn't give up on me when I hated him and shook my fists at him and cursed God. I thank God he didn't give up on me. And we do not know the plans... The, the, the beautiful things that God has for people that are in, in these difficult, challenging circumstances, but we are to be a transmitter of the mercy and the grace of God to call them out. That's our role. Speak truth, speak righteousness. We don't bow to sin, but in the middle of people's sin, in mercy, we reach down to call them out. Amen. Amen, amen and amen and amen. All right, let's stand.